According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Let's return one more time to uh, John 18. And then uh, we'll be turning over from there to uh, Matthew 26. We'll start with John 18. John's is the only gospel that presents the pretrial hearing before Annas, before he then proceeds to his initial hearing before Caiaphas and the council. And so uh, we can fix our bearings here once again and then uh, see what we're dealing with and, and move on, building on where we left it one week ago today. Before we, take a, before we get started, let's start with silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege we have to, to study, Father, the grace provision You've made for us here at Austin Bible Church. We thank You for this midweek class. It is a, a true treasure that I appreciate, and I thank You for those that have made it out today. Father, open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, that we may see this truth and make application ourselves, Father. You call us to be imitators of Christ, and as we watch Him uh, patiently endure His sufferings, Father, we realize that there is immediate application that each one of us can make. So, Father, uh, help us to understand what, what it means to operate with unjust uh, government and laws and judicial rulings. Father, uh, how, how it is our Savior left Himself in Your hands. He entrusted Himself to the faithful Creator. And, Father, open our eyes to that same application. We thank You in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All righty. If you are following in the outline, then we are, we've moved from point one to point two because we're moving from Annas to Caiaphas. Uh, this is going to be a combined outline, so there won't be a separate outline for episodes 27, 28, and 29. They've all been combined into this outline here for episode 26. These four different episodes all blended into one development for us here in, uh, in these upcoming classes. So, uh, episode 26 is first examined by Annas. Episode 27, the trial by Caiaphas and the council. Episode 28 is Peter's triple denial. And by the way, I don't feel bad about blending these all together because the Bible blends these all together. Okay, These verses are, are going to be blended and you're going to see that as we work our way through. Episode 29, the condemnation by the council where they pronounce him guilty and send him off bound to, uh, to Pontius Pilate for the next phase of what we're going to be studying. So under this, point one, only the Gospel of John records a preliminary hearing before Annas prior to the trial by Caiaphas. It's also quite likely that they both took place at the same venue, at the same home, the same house structure that had an outer gate, and had an inner gate, and had a courtyard. And uh, off of that courtyard, very conceivably, uh, in fact, archaeology has done different works trying to find the house of Caiaphas, and they think they have, um, that going through the outer gate, through the inner gate, into that courtyard uh, where the soldiers were warming themselves and the various servants and so forth were there, that off that same courtyard would have been multiple residences, including Annas' residence, including some of his sons perhaps, including Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and, uh, and things there. Because it doesn't appear to be that there was, much, there was very far to go <laughs> from one trial to the next. And it appears that um, these soldiers warming themselves by the fire and these servants warming themselves by the fire were all together in the same courtyard. So uh, I suspect that that was likely the circumstance. So uh, here in John 18, we have it in verses 12 down through verse 23. And then the epilogue to that is uh, in verse 24, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And, uh, and so there it is. And John doesn't really detail the trials before Annas. You'll notice uh, after verse 24, you have Peter and his denials in verses 25 through 27. And it says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. So, as far as John 18 is concerned, there is no detail at all related to Caiaphas or the, or the uh, Sanhedrin or the, um, uh, any of the proceedings that took place there, including the false witnesses and the, and, uh, the things that we see in the synoptic account. 
All right, now let me just skip on down. There's subpoints that we've dealt with. I'm just going to pass through all these to point two. And next time I'll be smart enough to remember that point two is slide number seven. Got myself in the note. All right. Caiaphas was high priest that year. High priest that year. And uh, it's, it's rather a tongue-in-cheek insult. And it's an interesting expression that's found throughout the Gospels, not only here in chapter 18, but it's used again. In, uh, or the first time it was used, it was back in chapter 11, verses 49 and 51. We can take a look at those very quickly. John 11, 49 and 51. High priest that year. So one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. In verse 51, uh, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And so it's kind of like maybe if, uh, if uh, something is just coming and going in rapid succession where there's just so many in a row that you just say, okay, well, here's the, uh, you know, like the, maybe the, the shoes my daughter wears or the, uh, you know, maybe if somebody goes through a lot of, uh, uh, I'm reading a book right now and this guy seems to be going through girlfriends every other week, you know, well, who's the girlfriend of the week? Who's the girlfriend of the week kind of a thing? Who's the high priest of the year kind of a thing? Because just wait and it's going to change. And they're coming and going in very rapid succession, which is the, the entire point. Okay. Um, and we, we discussed that. I'm not going to go back over that. Let's uh, start, though, with what we see. John makes it clear, though, that the verdict has already been decided. The verdict has already been decided. And when we compare chapter 18 back to chapter 11, we recognize that this is the same Caiaphas who has said previously, it is expedient that one man die for the sake of the entire nation. So they already have their minds made up. He has to die. They just need to find the legal way to do it. In their minds, it has to be legal. It has to be... Uh, does that seem twisted? Does that seem warped? Okay. Well, this is the universe they live in. They want him dead. They just have to find the right way to do it. Okay. To uh, satisfy their own, <laughs> their own legalistic realities. So um, we have the mention of it made here in uh, verses 13 and 14. When he was led away to Annas first, he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had previously, back in chapter 11, uh, advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So this is, this is their goal. This is what they feel has to be done. And uh, this was, again, the context for this was chapter 11. And remarkably enough, you can look at this two different ways. You can look at this the carnal way, of, of evil and ugliness that motivated by Satan that says if he dies, we'll, we'll be safe and we'll, we'll continue doing what we're doing. We'll continue to call the shots. We'll continue to get rich. We'll continue to, to run this place. Uh, but if we don't kill him, then Rome's going to get mad and Rome's going to come and, and destroy the nation and destroy us. Okay. Again, that's John 11, verses 49 through 51. We read a couple of those verses uh, a moment ago because it had the phrase high priest that year. Um, but in John 11, and I don't want to sit on this too long because we did discuss it last week, but um, recognize that they have to put a stop to what he's doing. And this specifically is after the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Okay? And if we don't stop him, he's performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Okay, that's, that's John 11:48, and they say that like it's a problem. Okay, and you know, would that it were? Wouldn't it be great if everybody got saved? How awesome would that be? But then he says, then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And you understand what order that comes in? Okay, their place comes first. Now, oh yeah, also yeah, the nation will be destroyed. That's that's bad too, <laughs> right? Okay, so. Um, we see, we see it for what it is. They're going to lose their position. They're going to lose their, pay, their place, their prestige, their wealth, their comfort. The fact that as it stands now, they, they run the show. They call the shots. They're the, they're the, they're the, uh, the big dogs in this, uh, in this situation. And they don't want that to come to an end. Okay? And that's intolerable. And so, when he says uh, uh, it's expedient that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish, 
He's saying, look, we can save our necks if we just murder him. If he's dead, we're all right. We can, we can just keep on going. Okay? But he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for his nation. Now, that is extraordinary. I think it shows how God honors the office of high priest, even when there's an unbeliever in it. God honors the office. God spoke through a prophetic utterance through that unbeliever. And uh, interesting. And I'd like to spend some more on that, some thought related to his offices, his institutions. And even if they're wicked men that are in there, well, who installs them? Who removes them? Who's, who still controls history? All right. Like the book of Daniel talks about a wicked man being lifted up in political office. And he installs the basest of men in, in political office. Now, does that mean the office is no longer valid? Not at all. Here we see the office of high priest is being honored and uh, the prophetic function is still being exercised even with an unbeliever. Okay? So it's interesting. Um, and of course, you look at it uh, this, this two different ways. There's the satanic way we've already talked about, but then there's a God's way that says, look, when one man dies, it's provision for everybody. Okay? One man dies as our substitute, as, our, as the... Uh, provision of redemption to satisfy the justice of the Father when He is propitiated, when He is satisfied, the work is complete and it benefits how many does it benefit? Okay? One man dies, we all benefit. So we see how this works. There is a, a true prophecy in this. Alright, well what kind of trial is it if, um, if uh, the, the uh, judgment's already been decided before any evidence is heard, right? It's a, it's a foregone conclusion. It's a kangaroo court is what it is. All right, so the synoptics now, they skip the pretrial hearing and they go straight to Caiaphas and the assembled Sanhedrin. So now at this time, we can turn over to Matthew 26. And they're all similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all similar. But Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68 will give us a good picture for this. And so, uh, this is his arrest in the garden. The disciples all left him and fled. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in, sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Okay? And, of course, we understand from John's account that at first he was kind of stuck out until John spoke to the servant girl and let him in. Uh, so he's able to follow from a distance. He's able to sit down with the officers to see the outcome. And that's why I think probably this one courtyard had Annas' residence on the one side, had Caiaphas' residence on the other side. And they didn't bring Jesus indoors to have it. The, the high priest came out and stood on the porch. They had the proceeding and then sent him over to the other porch. They had the proceeding. And so everybody sitting there in the courtyard around the fire was able to, uh, was able to observe this whole thing going on. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. You'd think, wow, we got no shortage of witnesses. We should have all kinds of evidence. The problem is the evidence has to agree. And the problem is that the witnesses have to agree. And you don't put anybody to death without, the witness of, without two or three uh, bearing witness. And uh, we see this is now a problem in the sense of uh, the satanic lies couldn't be kept straight. So, uh, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on, two did come forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is this that they, these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And here's something else, and we'll touch on it today, and I, I'd like to maybe, maybe by the time we get before Pilate, we'll start to... Um, all I'm going to do today is put bugs in your ears, and then, and then after we work our way through all six trials, we'll think back with the hindsight probably and do a better job. But why is it that he's silent some of the time and he speaks some of the time? What is it that actually triggers him to speak? What is it that triggers him to not speak? How is it that he's the he's the fulfillment of the as the lamb before its shearers is silent? So you know he doesn't he has to stay silent in some respects. But then there are other occasions where he is provoked and he cannot stay silent. All right. So what are the triggers for that? What are, what are, what are the distinctions that we draw from that? What might be the, the applications we learn from that? Because there is a time to speak and a time to be silent, right? In Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for either. 
Uh, you got the Proverbs that tell you don't answer a fool according to his folly. And then the very next verse says, you know, answer him according to his folly. So the, the, the real key is in our maturity and growth and wisdom as we start to make these right applications, we have to know which time when, right? We have to know which, which circumstance and how to do it. So uh, no uh, firm answers today, but just uh, bug in your ear as we work our way through these six trials. Annas, Caiaphas, uh, Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. Those are your six six trials. Okay. So, um, do you not answer? Matthew twenty six sixty two. What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Oh, there's a clue. <laughs> okay. Now remember, the office of high priest is occupied by an unbeliever, brood of viper, serving Satan. But God honors it for the office's sake and allows him to, you know, through him utters a prophecy. Likewise, here's an adjuration by the living God. Invoking the name of the living God. You tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, all right, doesn't stay silent in these circumstances. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> All right, so that, that opens his mouth, doesn't it? And, and he unleashes an answer more than what they were wanting. Okay, They wanted, uh, they wanted him just to uh, answer the specific charges. And he just says, well, you've said it yourself. Okay, Those are your charges, what you've said. Okay, But then he goes on. And he says, here's what you're going to anticipate. Here's what you're going to see. Because he's going to stay faithful. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be entitled to the cross because he's, or to the crown because he's submitting to the cross. So hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he's going to have his session followed by his advent. So the high priest tore his robes and said, what? Uh, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? <laughs> okay. He utters what they consider to be a blasphemy. And then they don't need any of their testimony. They don't need any false witnesses. They don't need any of their arguments. They don't need any of their evidence. They have this statement. They have his words in verse 64 to convict him. That they were heard by Annas, by Caiaphas, by the other uh, priests in the Sanhedrin. But I think all 70 were literally shoved into that one room. It is interesting. Um, because it does say the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony. Um, it, you suspect that the, uh, the majority of it was there, if not the entirety of it. Um, there's an, you know, an idiom, idiomatic way you can render that where you don't have to literally have all 70 people shoved in there. But regardless, um, as soon as he utters those words, as soon as he says what he says here in verse 64, um, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, the, of power coming on the clouds of heaven. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's, he's applying Old Testament prophecy to himself. And in their minds, that's blasphemy. He has blasphemed. And in, there's absolute agreement here. The Sanhedrin, there's, yeah, the Pharisees agree with the Sadducees, agree with everybody. That's blasphemy. Okay? In their opinion. And that's all that really matters because they're the judges and the jury and they're just not allowed to be the executioner. Unfortunately, they've got to hand him off to Pilate for that. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Mark record, the Luke record, I think we can glance at them here. Just, I, I don't know that we'll, that we'll pick up a few minor items. Let's go to Mark 14 read that account next. These do harmonize very well. Starting in verse 53. Maybe uh, the terminology here might have a little bit more of a descriptive flavor. Mark tends to do that. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. And the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. There you go. 
That's an expression that adds a bit of a, a flavor to what we read there in Matthew. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple. And is that what he said? Is that what he said there? No. He said, destroy as if, if you guys do it, then I will, I will raise it up in three days. But he was talking about himself. He was talking about the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about Herod's temple. And he didn't say that he was the one that was going to destroy it either. He said, if you guys destroy it, I'll raise it up in three days. But we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And so not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. And then again, the high priest stood up, came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? What is it these uh, men are testifying against you? <laughs> it's almost like, could you please help us out and try to make sense of these accusations because they don't make sense to us? <laughs> what is it these guys are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And uh, the wording is a little bit different than what we have in Matthew, but it does invoke the name of, of his Father, that he is the Son of God. And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with a cloud of heaven. Again, we've got uh, Daniel 7 there being brought into the picture. All right, over to Luke then. Luke 22, 54 through 65. And uh, we get Peter's denials a little bit earlier in this account, and then we skip on down. Um, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, Peter following at a distance. Uh, after they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And then there's the denials from the servant girl. Let's see. More denials, more denials. Rooster crows, Peter weeps. Verse 63. Actually, we don't get the deliberations here at all because then the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him, beating him blindfolding him and they're asking prophesy who is the one who hit you and they were saying uh, many other things against him blaspheming and we'll discuss that uh, you know what is blasphemy why is it that they're accusing him of blasphemy yet they themselves are the ones committing it <laughs> okay um, saying many other things against him they are the ones truly blaspheming but that's the charge they label they levy against him as a charge worthy of death and then um, here we go. Here's the deliberations in 66 and following. When it was day, this is actually now skipping ahead to what we'll cover under point three, no, point four, the council, their daytime session. Because anything that was done before the sun comes up is not legal, according to their own uh, rabbinic, their own uh, uh, the, the the procedures that were put into place in the Mishnah. A capital offense, first of all, can't be at night. And secondly, it can't be in a single day either. It's got to it's got to have at least two days of, of testimony in, in, for a capital offense. There's other things that they violate too. We're going to talk about. So, looking at verse 66, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, led them away to their council chamber. And so now it appears that once day arises, they actually find a, a, a larger venue. And here at this point, I think is when all of the uh, 70 members have have been assembled. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And uh, that's his morning testimony as the sun has arisen that Friday morning. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Because this is already the morning trial. But the, the contrast here is so vivid and it's so extraordinary. And, 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 and because they're so vivid, it's caused a lot of Bible skeptics to doubt that they're true. To say, oh, well, these must just be literary devices. These must just be, because the way they're written in such a, a literary sense, it must be fictitious, you know. Because it's so clear that they accuse them of blasphemy, but they're the ones blaspheming. Or... Um, Jesus' faithful I am statement and Peter's ugly I am not, you know, denials. 
And they seem so um, contrasted in such a literary way. It's got to be just a literary device. No. <laughs> this really happened. Okay? And they found a, a literary way to write about it, but it doesn't deny the fact that it really happened. Okay? And the, uh, of course there's irony involved. How, how could there not be? Given the fact that the, the one without sin is taking the place of the sinners of, of mankind. Of course there's going to be some irony involved. The whole thing, the plan of God is filled with that. In any event. All right. So, so uh, John has the pretrial hearing with Annas and the synoptics skip the pretrial hearing and go straight to Caiaphas and the assembled Sanhedrin. Point C. Caiaphas is of Aramaic origin, but there's no real agreement. <laughs> there's a variety of understandings for its etymology. In other words, what does Caiaphas mean? Read five different sources, you get five different opinions. Okay. Uh, some even try to relate it to Cephas somehow. Um, it's really not. That's the more obscure of the different spellings for Caiaphas or the spellings for Cephas, Cephas, Peter. Um, in any event, if you want to break it down, Caiaphas is number 2533. That's the number that Strong's assigned to it. It's a proper name. It's only used nine times in the New Testament. All nine times apply to this guy. All right. And... Uh, it shows up as early as Luke 3.2 and as late as Acts 4.6, but every reference, all nine of these, uh, all refer to the same guy, the son-in-law of Annas and the, the high priest who condemns Christ on, uh, on his uh, crucifixion day. Uh, not like we're with, with Hananiah. We've got 11 of them in the Old Testament. Okay? It's not, not a common name such as uh, we looked at before. Uh, so there you have it. Matthew 26, verse 3 and verse 57. Luke 3, 2. I don't recall if we discussed this or not, but the uh, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Yeah, we did. I remember because I remember illustrating with the uh, consulship of Julius and Caesar. Um, but this is the time frame for the uh, ministry of John the Baptist in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so he commenced his uh, prophetic speaking ministry. And the, uh, I mentioned the, the liberals, theological liberals, hate the, the expression, the, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. They say that's wrong. There's only one high priest at a time. Why would Luke say there's, there's a high priesthood with two high priests simultaneously? Why would Luke say that? And they keep insisting that, that Luke is wrong for doing so. And uh, I don't have any issues with that. <laughs> if there's one serving in the office and one pulling the strings behind him that's really calling the shots, as that uh, appears to have been the case. All right, John 11:49, John 18. And then finally, the last reference is in Acts 4, 6, when uh, after they've succeeded in, in murdering the Christ, uh, that doesn't seem to make their life any happier because now... <laughs> Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father and these these pesky disciples out there now that are continuing on in uh, preaching a resurrected Christ. And uh, we see the same rascals here. Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. And uh, they've got Peter and John there uh, grilling them on how it was that they uh, did that miracle. Okay? So that's our last glimpse of Caiaphas in the scriptures. Point D. The trial held no interest in Jesus' teaching or his disciples. Okay, I don't know if you picked up on that as we read through it. That's what Annas' trial was all worried about. Annas kept grilling him on his teaching and on his disciples. This trial doesn't go there. Doesn't even care. This trial held no interest in Jesus' teaching or disciples. Their only focus was finding two witnesses who could keep their false testimony coordinated. <laughs> All right. This trial held no interest in Jesus' teaching or disciples. So it really does mark a, a distinction, a contrast between Annas in those proceedings and Caiaphas here in these proceedings. Their only focus was finding two witnesses who could keep their false testimony coordinated. It's kind of interesting. I mean, realize here we are at four in the morning. <laughs> you know, 
Where are they finding these guys? I'm bringing them all in, okay? Holding these proceedings. You know, even the uh, a lot of commentaries suspect that the reason why they were they, they were stalling for time actually, uh, they they kind of guess or they kind of uh, get these theories that they were stalling for time when they brought him to Annas because Caiaphas was still trying to wake everybody up, <laughs> trying to get him out of bed, trying to get all the witnesses in and and so forth. You know, maybe who knows. Um, but trying to uh, coordinate their stories this early in the morning, I, I can I can relate to that. I can envision how uh, how uh, what a uh, Keystone Cops type of comedy this might have been, and different people. I mean, I'm not the sharpest early in the morning, right? You wake up and you try to <laughs> try to remember what you talked about the night before. All right. But as we read it, uh, Matthew 26, 59 through 61, Mark 14, 55 through 59. We've already gone through those. Verses, um, they would bring witnesses forward, but they weren't consistent. They weren't consistent, and there were there were uh, contradictions between them. Okay, and uh, and and so we might read that and say, well, who cares? They're committing murder anyway. Why, why does that bug them so much? <laughs> right? If one says this, the other says that, why don't they just say, well, there they agreed. They said the same thing. Okay, and it's interesting. Um, they're a bunch of liars anyway. Why not just lie about the lie? Okay. And part of this is, is, is stuff I've mentioned before where it's like the, the insanity of, of cosmos wisdom. They at least try to be internally self-consistent even when they're self-contradictory. Um, they, they, they demand... they. They deny that there's any God in the universe that has an absolute moral standard. But then they try to defend their moral standards. And they try to say that, that there is right and wrong in the world. And, and they're right and you're wrong. And, and well, what's the foundation for their standards of right and wrong when they deny that there is a God? What, what is it within them that compels them to have an absolute standard of right and wrong? What is it that is driving these people to at least have... Uh, a farce of a, of a trial. Why go through the motions? Why, why insist on having two witnesses that agree? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I'm asking a lot of questions that I have no answers for this morning. It's just stuff that I, I chew on and ponder as I evaluate the nature of the fallen mind that operates within this, this uh, cosmos uh, world that we live in. All right. All we need is just two witnesses who can keep the false testimony coordinated. And then we're legal. Then we got it. Okay? And the, the truth is, they never get it. They force him to say something as a quotation of Scripture, and then they themselves become the witnesses. They become the witnesses that he has uttered his blasphemy in open court. That he's a blasphemer. That he's ascribing deity to himself. Ascribing the fulfillment of Scripture to himself. And the moment he does that, they just view him as... Is guilty. Okay. <laughs> so it's interesting. All right. And this is point E, their conclusion. The kangaroo court only succeeds, and I put that in quotes, not really much of a success. In their minds it is. The kangaroo court only succeeds when they misconstrue Jesus' faithful testimony. Because it's not blasphemy for God to say that he's God. <laughs> it's not blasphemy for the Christ to say that he's the Christ. Now, if I make a, a claim like that, if I was to stand up and say, I'm the fulfillment of, uh, I'm the Son of Man appearing before the Ancient of Days, and, and uh, God's going to rule on my behalf and cast down the kingdoms of the world, well, that clearly is blasphemy then. I'm not God. They say, you are the Son of God then? He says, I am. And that's true. Well, they have to misconstrue his answer. It's only false in their eyes because they've predetermined that it's false. <laughs> okay. Again, this is the circular reasoning of arguing the conclusion. You assume the conclusion as a premise. And so what conclusion do you come to? The one that you assumed as a premise. What other conclusion could you come to? 
In their minds, he's not the Christ. So if he says he's the Christ, blasphemy, guilty, put him to death. And because he said it in open court, they got more than two witnesses. They got all 70. They got the full Sanhedrin right here. All right. They only succeed when they misconstrue Jesus' faithful testimony. There's nothing wrong about what he said. Nothing wrong at all in anything that he said. It's fulfillment of Scripture. It's the truth to who he is. Um, Interesting, all right? I'm not going to take this. Well, should we take the time or we get on to Peter's denials? The the verses that he he cites here, you know, and and in the... uh, yeah, let's let's take a look at it. Daniel chapter seven. It's worth it. In Daniel chapter seven. We have taught Daniel in Revelation multiple times over the years. Daniel especially. And if you were a part of that study or if you've studied it elsewhere, you may recall that in this chapter we got a lot of back and forth from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven, things going on. Uh, The scene constantly shifts in the uh, visions that Daniel is seeing. And while he's observing on earth these rising beasts and the things that they're doing, in particular the fourth beast, the uh, coming of Rome, in eschatological Rome, what Rome in the end times is going to do, and the rise of this little horn, and all the things here, the mouth uttering great boast. This is Antichrist. This is the beast of uh, Revelation. Then it says in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Now there's a lot here in this verse that's not explained in this verse. There's an awful lot here in this verse that you've got to get from Matthew 24, you've got to get from Revelation, you've got to get from other passages throughout the New Testament, you've got to get from... Um, Second uh, Thessalonians 2 when you're going to study Antichrist and different, different elements there. But why are there multiple thrones and only one person seated? You don't get that in Daniel. you got multiple thrones and only one, Ancient of Days, took his seat. Okay. Well, because as far as Daniel is concerned, Daniel has no information related to the coming mystery of the church. Daniel has no information related to God the Father handing all judgment to the Son. So in Daniel's vision, it's God the Father who is seated as a judge. And it's God the Father who will rule in favor of God the Son in this context. Okay. Now, when you want the rest of the story, you go to Revelation and you see that there are thrones set up and they are all seated. They are all seated. It's not just Jesus on his throne. All the other thrones are seated as well. Because you and I are seated. We're the bride of Christ. We will judge this world. We will judge angels. But none of that's known. You know a lot more than Daniel knew when he wrote Daniel chapter 7. here. Okay. For the court sat and the books were opened. Back to the earth again. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And we understand this is going to happen at Armageddon. Jesus is going to come back at Second Advent. He's going to lay hold of the false prophets. He's going to lay hold of the beast. He will slay them with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. Um, verse 13, back to heaven. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, you are going to see the son of man coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before, before him. And it's not the Antichrist that's going to be ruled in favor of. It's going to be Christ who's ruled in favor of by God the Father. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Not to the beast, to the Son of Man. Okay? To the Son of Man. The, the, the beast gets his dominion from the dragon, from the adversary. Jesus humbles himself. 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. Jesus is not entitled to the pinnacle of all exaltation until Jesus submits to the pinnacle of humiliation. So it's not until this scene here. So to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Alright, now if you want the commentary on this, um, the angel is going to explain it to Daniel down in verse 26. He says this beast will have... uh, he will speak out against the Most High. That's verse 25. And uh, they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment. That's what that scene was all about in, in those verses. His dominion will be taken away and, and uh, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Alright. So there it is. And this is what Jesus has on His mind. You wonder what Jesus has on His mind while He's going through these trials? (laughs) How does He keep His sanity with all this injustice going on around Him? He's watching these, these blasphemous satanic trials unfold. But what's in His heart? What's in His mind? Is He cycling doctrine as He's working His way through the Scriptures? He says, boy, there's another court that's in session. (laughs) Okay? There's another judge of the universe. And uh, Satan in this darkness is is condemned. As long as he stays faithful and goes to the cross and completes the work the Father's designed for him to do. And so he's watching all these earthly trials, these mockeries, these miscarriages of justice going on. And he's thinking back to Daniel 7. He's thinking back to trials real trials where he's the one that's going to have the ruling in his favor okay (laughs) an adversary is done that's going to be fun Um, let me just give you one more while I'm at it Uh, Revelation chapter 5 you want to see another scene here in heaven John is weeping because Nobody is found worthy to uh, take the scroll and to break its seals. And then one of the elders, a personal theory is that these are the 24 elders. These are the, uh, the, uh, the, the greatest church age saints and the maximum reward of, of eternity. And uh, I suspect that John himself is one of the 24. And my, my pet theory, which I'll find out when I get there, is that this was actually John himself encouraging himself, <laughs> which could be kind of fun. So one of the elders came to him and said, Stop weeping. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, this Revelation 5.5. 5. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Oh, I love that. (laughs) He knows it's his. He knows it's his. Okay. And then the new song gets sung, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we get these scenes, okay? The heavenly realities. Daniel, you got the Son of Man appearing before the Ancient of Days. In Revelation, we got the, the Lamb standing, having been slain. And you get these heavenly realities where the judgment is in favor of Jesus Christ. We can come to appreciate that. It may be, shall I hint, it may be that that's what we want to keep fixed in our minds when we face injustices and wickedness and and uh, undeserved suffering and everything else. Remember, it was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of the Father. Alright. Finally then, the last thing about Caiaphas' trial. Point F. Capital punishment requires Jesus to be remanded to the Roman governor. Capital punishment requires Jesus to be remanded to the Roman governor. 
They can't just apply the death penalty themselves. They're, they're prohibited from the Roman authorities by doing that. And so uh, they have to submit to the Roman authority structure for the capital punishment. In the meantime, <laughs> while we're waiting, some physical abuse and mocking is in order. In the meantime, some physical abuse and mocking serves to satisfy their hatred. Serves to satisfy their hatred. Another feature of cosmos uh, thinking is it's never satisfied. Even when they get their way, there's still something that irks at them. Even when they get what they want, they still are filled with loathing and hatred and anger. <laughs> no shortage of illustrations. If you turn on the nightly news, you'll, you'll see it. Uh, so, in the meantime, some physical abuse and mocking. We've, we've looked at these. Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68. You know, blindfolding him and punching him. Saying, okay, you're a prophet. Prophesy. Who hit you? You know, who hit you? Okay. Man. And you wonder, I mean, did any of these guys ever get saved later on? And think back. <laughs> the centurion that said, you know, surely this man was innocent. Some of these Roman soldiers had to have. Who knows? We'll find out, I guess, when we get there. Mark 14, 65. Luke 22, 63 through 65. The, the crown of thorns, all the, all the uh, other proceedings and things that go on. Why do that? They got what they wanted, didn't they? They got the death sentence. They're sending them to Pilate. Why, uh, why beat them up in the meantime? What are you doing there? Are you achieving anything? What are they achieving? Well... They'll feel better. <laughs> right? What does that mean? Satisfy their hatred. Doesn't solve anything. And, and do you truly feel better afterwards? Or is it the passing pleasure of sin? Said, well, it was fun when I did it. Not really. Not really. All right, we move on then to main point three Peter's denials. Peter's triple denial is recorded in all four Gospels. Peter's triple denial is recorded in all four Gospels. And I think they harmonize wonderfully well. Well, I'll spell them out for you in A, B, and C. Denial 1, Denial 2, Denial 3. And we'll give you a D, E, F. And uh, some other aspects here related to denial. We don't want to be imitators of Peter. We certainly don't want to put ourselves in a denial capacity. Remember, whoever denies Christ will be denied by him before the Father. There are reward consequences for um, our failure to identify with our Savior. We don't, you know what I mean by that, right? Reward consequences, not salvation consequences. Reward consequ uh, consequences for denying Him before men. Yeah, Peter doesn't lose his salvation here, but he does lose reward. Peter does come under divine discipline for, this, uh, for these denials. <clears throat> some respects, I forget who, maybe I heard it from John Eichmann or somebody, you know, that Peter actually forfeited his right to write a gospel. The reason why we have a gospel of Mark. <laughs> okay. Possibly. Possibly. But we do know that he goes out, he weeps bitterly, he is under discipline, divine discipline, and has to uh, change his thinking, has to have a repentance, has to come back to the to the light, I think he has that uh, that moment in the on the beach by the uh, the second charcoal fire in Scripture when Jesus says, "Do you love me?" and tells him to tend my lambs. Says, "I, I still got work for you to do, Peter. You're not fired. You're still an apostle. You're still going to tend my lambs." Okay, you don't lose salvation, but you do lose reward in uh, in these consequences. So triple denial, uh, Matthew 26. You'll note there's a gap. Verse 58 and then verses 69 through 75. That same pattern is repeated in Mark 14. You got a verse, then you got a gap, then you got another stretch of verses. As if we've got an initial denial, and then denials two and three take place somewhat later. And the gap might be a little bit awkward um, unless we understand that, of course, there's a gap when we uh, finally get to the fourth gospel and we recognize that, uh, that there's actually two trials and the denials span both trials. 
So I think in John 18, we get the best sequence out of all four of these. So again, Matthew 26, 58, then a gap uh, to verses 69 through 75. Mark 14, 54, then a gap to verses 66 through 72. Luke 22 actually presents them all together. Luke 22 doesn't, doesn't uh, present them with the gap structure that the others do. Verses 54 through 62 puts them all together in one, one uh, sequence. And then John 18, likewise with a gap, but John 18 also spells out the two trials. Um, John 18, 15 through 18, and then 25 through 27. Okay, so denial number one. We'll cover this and then come back next week for the others. Denial number one was to a padiske, was to a slave girl. Denial number one was to a padiske, a slave girl. Matthew 26, 69. We'll start with that. In fact, every gospel record agrees. Every gospel record uses the same vocabulary, the same terminology. Uh, a pais or a paidos is a, is a child. Um, you put it in the diminutive, make it a little child, or uh, could refer to a toddler. Um, this is not a toddler. <laughs> what is not referring to a toddler, the diminutive also was used for slaves. And that's what we have here. Okay, like the uh, insulting language if you, you know, call your slave boy, boy. Call your slave girl, girl. Okay, we don't have that anymore in our culture. But back in the day, if you read some Mark Twain or read some uh, uh, works back when there was slavery in this nation, uh, calling your slave boy or calling your slave girl was normal. And that's nothing unique to the American experience. It goes all the way back to the ancient world. They were called boys, they were called girls, as it were. In fact, paideske is used exclusively of uh, slaves in, uh, in, uh, in our literature, in our biblical literature. All right? Matthew 26, 69 through 70. Mark 14, 66 through 68. Luke 22, 56 through 57. And then the added detail that this particular slave girl was the doorkeeper. She was the slave girl who kept the door. This, too, is corroborates the understanding that he's not in the temple at this point. He's not in the official Sanhedrin precincts at this point, where he will be in the morning, but he's actually in a private residence at this point. So they don't have um, the, the temple guards or the Sanhedrin council chamber guards that they would have in the morning. Um, the, the, this doorkeeper is a slave girl in the private residence, and that, uh, that correlates very well. Okay? Now, let me ask you something. <laughs> I like the fact that it starts off with this girl, you know. I mean, I think it shows how fearful Peter is. Because who's he lying to? He's lying to this girl. Right? How scared is he? Okay, well, it's not just the girl, it's who she might tell. Okay? And that's how it builds in Temptation 2, because she's told somebody. And now there's another slave. Okay? And then by denial three, those have told a whole lot of people. It keeps every time he denies it, it just keeps getting spread more and more and more. It's kind of like the nature of any kind of lie. If you're telling lies, what's going to happen? <laughs> you got to tell more lies to cover from the other lies, and then those get exposed. Now you got to tell more lies, as far as it goes. I try to tell people just tell the truth to start with. It's easy to remember. Okay. It's the truth. It is what it is. All right. So we have the slave girl who kept the door. Um, in Matthew 26, she's featured here, verses 69 and 70. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl, that's our term, Padiske, number 38:14. Servant girl came to him and said, You too, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. Now, what's that too all about? If we didn't have the Gospel of John, we'd be curious. But because of John, we understand that the two there has reference to John himself, the younger, the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who was known to the high priest, the one who was known to the slave girl, the one that had access through that, through that outer gate, who could come and go as he pleased, and who was known to be a disciple of Jesus. All right? You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all. So she's, she's the one technically that he's denying it to, but she's not alone in this. 
there is an all that goes with her. Okay? And, and that's helpful to, to keep in mind, too, because uh, how many people were in this courtyard? Well, eventually, you know, the whole Sanhedrin gets packed in there, but servants, guards, the officers that arrested him, John and Peter, I think they were the only two of the twelve. Okay. But he denied it before them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. So here's maybe a, a mild form of denial where you just profess ignorance. Play stupid. What? What? What are you talking about? Okay. <laughs> Different aspects there. Um, different. I, I got pretty good at that actually. It was it was a technique I employed in the jail with different inmates, and they'd they'd ask something, and I'd what? What are you talking about? And uh, tried to get them to uh, to divulge more information than uh, they were willing to do, and and it's amazing how effective it is when they think you're a blithering idiot and they take time to spell things out for you. Oh, okay. Anyway. Uh, so that's Peter and his denials there. Uh, Mark 14, some, something similar. Let's see if we can find some shades of distinction here. I think those that really object, that, that one author finds six denials in his harmony. And it just bugs me to death because there aren't six denials, there's three denials. The prophecy is to deny me three times. The rooster will crow. Um, but it, and it's an otherwise good harmony. I enjoy it often. But he actually finds six denials in, the, in this process because he won't allow himself to reconcile these ones that he thinks are, are uh, mutually exclusive. Mark 14, 67. I don't think they're that exclusive and, and I don't have any problem uh, harmonizing them. Particularly when you realize how many people are floating around in this courtyard. Um, as Peter was below in the courtyard, this is Mark fourteen sixty six. One of the servant girls of the high priest came. Okay, that's not. So he had the phrase of the high priest and then changed, make it somebody different. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, "You also were with Jesus the Nazarene." But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out on the, onto the porch. Okay, so he actually tries to distance himself while still being able to hear. He gets to that porch between the two gates, the outer gate and the inner gate. And uh, doesn't quite leave the property, but he gets as far away as he can and still observe the proceedings. So I don't, I don't view that as contradictory or a second servant. Okay. Uh, over to Luke 22, 56-57. I should just put these up on parallel display in the software. That way we don't have to do all the flipping, right? This flipping is only necessary because we're using paper Bibles. That first century technology. Alright, Luke 22, 56. Servant girl. Same vocabulary. Seeing him as he sat in the firelight and, took, and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. I do not know him. And it's the John record that we looked at a week ago where he was known to the high priest, known to the, to the servant, John eighteen seventeen, that we find out that this slave girl... kept the door. You have other slave girls that keep the, you know, work in the kitchen. Other slave girls that maids and clean and whatnot. This, this girl's job was the door. And, uh, yeah, this is the <clears throat> chapter where we find out that this disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. So that's this answers our two and our also and all the other clues that we have in the synoptic accounts. And then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. So there's denial number one. We'll come back next week to denials two and three. They get worse. Peter actually starts cursing. <laughs> Angry. You know, using army language and stuff. That uh, 
you know, how many times do you have to answer this? And, uh, and actually, with the anathema, bringing a curse upon his own head, actually, for so doing, in any event. Um, and then the parallels that come with this, the, um, the, the application that we have to make if we're going to deny our Lord, if we're going to confess. Okay? Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this time together. We uh, just so rejoice in the faithfulness of our Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen.